Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm really pleased to be bringing you a long-term guest of the show, Phil King. Phil King's the Chief Investment Officer and one of the founders of Regal Funds Management and a real doyen of the Australian investment landscape. Please remember that this podcast is not designed to be, nor is it, specific financial advice or general advice or advice of any sorts. People are always encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the episode. Do, however, continue to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks, as always, goes to Tom Oriel, who helps produce the show, as well as Josh Clark, my son, whose little side hustle is Parakeet Productions Editing Podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate and like whatever on whatever platform you prefer to listen to your podcasts on and enjoy this episode. Phil King, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me, David. Well, Phil, I reckon it's been oh, maybe the third time you've come on, so thank you very much. It's great. I know you're busy and you've got a lot on. Um, it's always a little bit more difficult preparing for you. I remember the first podcast I did with you all those years ago and uh, I'd previously done one with Hamish Douglas to that and Hamish, I could ask him one question an hour later I'd come back and look up and he was finished. But I remember with you I had, you know, my my 12 questions all done and in about two minutes after I thought, geez, what am I going to ask now? So it's great to have you back on. Um, the, thir- the first thing... I, I want to touch on um, is anyone with access to Google can realise that you've made a pretty good fist of this investment game and that you working isn't an economic necessity. So my question starts off with is why do you do it and what gets you out of bed each morning? Yeah, great question, David. And um, yeah, look, it's, it's a passion. I really enjoy what I do. If I wasn't working, I'd be investing for a hobby and it's just a great privilege to work at Regal where we've got access to, you know, some of the best companies in Australia and around the world. Um, and, yeah, I, I, it's, it's fascinating. I get to learn about so many new things and I get to meet so many, you know, people that have done really well. Um, and so I enjoy that aspect of things. And I just also enjoy um, building a team and I'm really proud of what we've built at Regal. Um, we've got some great people in the team in all aspects of our business and I really enjoy that side of things as well. So, look, there's many aspects of what I do that I enjoy and, and that's um, that's why I do it. I think just alluding to your uh, introduction earlier and I'll try and be a bit more expansive in my answers if you want me to, but uh, I, I guess part of the reason I think I've been successful is that I'm very curious about many things in our world and I'm, dare I say it, my wife might not agree, but I, I would suggest that I'm probably a better listener than I am a speaker. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, look, I just really enjoy learning about new things. So that's, you know, why I do what I do. One of the things I've observed over the years is that you're very humble and we had you and you're good enough to come along when we had the hundredth episode and we recorded in front of a live crowd. And there were a few clients there who, you know, have done very well and uh, sold businesses and they were intrigued at the end and they said, oh, David, who's this fellow here? 
who who was there, and, and a couple of said, "Oh, you know, the, the guy he had the looked like he needed a new pair of shoes." <laughs> I, I, th- I think your shoes might have been polished or a little bit, and and but you're a very humble, you know, you're not at anywhere anyways ostentatious, which which I absolutely love. You know, you keep it very real. Um, and day one, is that something you've done by design, or is that just you? Because there's this kind of almost Buffettish type, you know, he, he was famous and is famous, you know, uh, um, for that sort of keeping it real, not getting ahead of himself type of thing. And you, you, in my dealings with you, come across as just very straightforward, not in front, nothing seems to be lavish over the top. Um, and it's all focused on this. Is that something you've, you've consciously made a decision or about? Or is that just come out of the woodwork for you? Look, it's just who I am, I guess. Um, I guess the things that are important to me are, are certainly not those things about, you know, how you dress and what sort of car you drive. And mm-hmm. I'm a bit embarrassed to say that someone thought I needed a new pair of shoes. I said, well, they, they, they couldn't believe. I remember the comment. It was somebody's wife and they said to me, hey, David, because I remember I speak to the fund and the investment to them all the time. I said, look how it's done well. And I said, they're really aligned. You know, the, the, the founder and his brother has a lot of their money and his mother's money and they've done very well and have a look at the size of the fund. And she said, oh, and he's, he's the one with those shoes. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I think I focus on what's important and, you know, what's important for me is, you know, not always appearances. Um, mm-hmm. I try and look under the cover, as it were. Um, but equally, you know, I do try and present well these days and I know that is important in some ways. But look, it's just who I am, you know. I, you know, I guess I'm lucky that I'm secure enough in myself and secure in my family and, you know, I've got lots of friends and family around me that... yes. I don't always feel it necessary to try and impress people by, you know, appearances or anything like that. So um, from that perspective, yeah, I just feel I'm incredibly lucky. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And if the industry had a bit more of it, it'd be all the more healthy. So Phil, what's an average day look like for you? Yeah, well, the short answer to that question is there's no such thing as an average day, but, you know, to give you some colour as to how I spend my time, Mm. I guess... You know, I'm like many other people in office jobs. I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk in front of my computer. I spend a lot of time on the telephone talking to various people and I spend a lot of time in meetings. Um, so that's the what, short answer. What, but when, I was, when I was thinking about that question, one of the things I had in my mind was, you know, there's been a lot of activity and, and the papers have speculated a lot about Regal's future direction and the VGI acquisition and the PM capital acquisition and a whole heap of others mooted or spoken about. And I was just wondering whether you spend a lot of your time in front of screens trading and talking to brokers and, and, and getting positions in market intelligence or are you more strategically focused these days and or has that changed over the last 10 years? Look, dare I say it, I'm probably less involved in the management and operations of Regal than I probably have been ever before. And we're just fortunate that, you know, we have been successful and things have grown that we, are, you know, can employ people to do roles that perhaps, you know, previously that I did part of the roles in. Um, you know, we're lucky that Brendan O'Connor, our CEO, does a great job. We've got some wonderful people in, in marketing and distribution um, you know, I don't even have to write the newsletter every month anymore. Um, so I do try and read it every month, but I certainly <laughs> don't have to write it anymore. So that's a, you know, th- there's a lot of things that I used to do that I don't do anymore. Um, and so I am obviously involved in Regal at the high level, at, mm-hmm. at the strategic level. Um, but we're fortunate that I think the board of Regal and the CEO, Brendan, 
Um, we all very much agree with the vision for the firm, which is to become you know, the leading provider of alternative investment strategies in Australia. Um, and so it's all about how to implicate, you know, um, to kind of fulfil that vision. Um, and so but most of my, that just means that most of my day is filled up with the investing side of things. And that's like many other investors in Australia. We obviously spend a lot of time every morning seeing what happened in Wall Street. Um, and then, you know, between the hours of 10am and 4pm, I'm very focused on what's happening in the Australian market. And then outside of those hours, I'm, you know, obviously looking at what's happening offshore. Um, we've got a very active Asian investment strategy that's been quite exciting for me to be more involved in. And that's great. Um, and yeah, we're just looking at all markets around the world these days, which is very exciting. And how do you deal with, when you're analysing and thinking about that, avoiding some of the cognitive biases that a lot of investors talk about? You know, just about every client or prospective client when we start a relationship tells me how they're going to buy assets low and when they're down and they're going to sell assets when they're high. Um, and the absolute opposite is always the truth. When assets are low in value, um, all they want to do is sell. And uh, when assets are high, like we've had a run in the last quarter in some US type of equities, all they want to do is buy and look at those type of things. How do you avoid and how, because Regal and, and you have been very, very good out of crises. And I, I, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the positions and how quickly you do that. But how, how do you get to a position where you feel comfortable buying something that's down 60%, for instance? Yeah, again, I guess it's just being secure in myself and not getting knocked around too much by the market. And, you know, in some ways, I always have a view in my mind of what something's worth. And sometimes people think it's crazy if I think something's worth five times the current market price or um, if, for example, you know, something goes to zero and I say, well, there's no price, I'd buy this. Um, and so in some ways, the valuations in my mind are always very different to what's going on at the market level. And so I'm very good at, I think, separating those two things and seeing what's happening in the market. And that does not affect, you know, my valuations. Whereas I think a lot of um, analysts and dare I say it, especially sell-side analysts are often um, guided by the market. And so many times the share price target is 10% above the current market price. Um, and, you know, so many times brokers are reluctant to put a sell on something and, and, you know, you just pick up on, you know, how the market works. And I think I'm very fortunate that I've got a lot of experience. I've worked on the sell side for a number of years. I've worked in accounting for a number of years. And that kind of tells me about some of the biases on the sell side, some of the biases in preparing accounts. Um, but it's also, I think, just having that experience. I've been through crises before and... Obviously, you know, you work out what's driving the crisis and, you know, the GFC is a great example, you know, felt like markets were shut for a while there and any company that had any sort of debt well, might struggle to refinance that. And so when, you know, markets opened again for business, it was very clear to me that the world had changed and, you know, things were going to take off again. And Again, in the COVID crisis, you know, it did feel like the economy was shut. Um, and then when we saw the government support for the economy and, and with hindsight, we all know that 
it almost was a positive for the economy because of the amount of fiscal stimulus that we saw. Um, you know, you had to realise things had changed. And so I think I'm probably good at recognising when things have changed um, and also probably good at um, not losing my conviction and having the confidence to back myself. Phil, we've spoken often about your activities in markets and the fact that you are so active. I think Mercer put together some research or maybe Zenith that uh, they, they estimated that your turnover might be something like a thousand percent. So I'm sure there's a whole heap of brokers who are very happy, happy with you in the market. We've spoke about that as a deliberate strategy. Um, and the AFR even described you as being necessary. The market needs you as much as you need the market. What do you think about those sort of comments and that sort of volume? Is that a deliberate strategy by yourself? Yeah, look, I'm not sure so much about that AFR article. They always like to get a good headline and use a bit of exaggeration, I guess, if necessary. I'm sure I've got no doubt whatsoever the market had functioned very well without us. Um, so, yeah, the question is, um, look, certainly the turnover in some of our strategies is quite high. Um, but I always say, you know, often that's the small part of our portfolio gets turned over a lot mm-hmm. and boosts up the average. Whereas if you look at a lot of our shareholdings, they don't change. Um, and so there's a small part of our portfolios that get traded a lot, but the what I call the core of our portfolios is very consistent. And in fact, I think part of the reason that we've been successful is that many of our holdings we've held for many, many years. And in fact, even on the short side, sometimes our holdings are held for years at a time. And that's part of the reason I think we're successful on the short side as well as the long time. Uh, the long side is because... You know, we're not flipping them around and trying to trade the whole time. So it might sound a little bit inconsistent if I can say that, but um, most of our core holdings are are, are long-term holdings, but we do have a trading part of our portfolio. So, um, yeah, I I understand why people say we're we're heavy traders. We're happy to accept that term. Um, But at the core of my heart, I see myself very much as an investor. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, the world lost Charlie Munger, one of the biggest, uh, most well-recognised and a lot of people follow he and Buffett's sort of adages. And, you know, one of the famous things that they're always saying is, you know, lethargy bordering on sloth. So I think a lot of fundamental investors like this buy, hold and watch the story play out over many years, which can be dull and boring. And I always think looking at your numbers and some of the commentary, how does that sort of attitude um play with that. And I think you've answered that quite well. Now, the um, small companies fund, and I'll keep, I'll knock on the AFR a little bit in my research, uh, preparing for this, that, um, you know, 2023 was a a great year for the the small companies fund. I think it was up 36%, which ranked it as number one by Mercer for Australian equities fund. So congratulations, well done. Um, My comment would be, and, and my question with regard to this is I want to say the fund's got an average, the small companies fund of about 15% compound annual growth rate since inception or thereabouts, um, which is excellent and fantastic. Um, however, the volatility is there, right? And I think there might've even been a comment alluding to, you know, it's the type of fund you put your money into and close your eyes. Um, but I've had two experiences with large clients where we've deployed assets, um, one, when we opened their super fund about 10 years ago and about two years later, they said, 
what's this fund in here that's down 20%? I said, okay, don't worry about it. And then they they sold a large asset in uh, the end of 21. So we started deploying money at the start of 22. And of course, horrible time to be deploying assets. And uh, of course, we had the same discussion at the end of 2022. What's this asset that's down here? David, why are we staying with this? Now, of course, I've just done another annual review with them a couple of weeks ago and they're like, oh, gee, you're a really smart guy, David. You told us to stick with this and stay with that. So my question getting there is that 15% compound annual growth rate comes with quite a ride that goes along with it. And is your mind, in your mind, is that sort of volatility worth the return? Look, we certainly think it is. Um, you know, we certainly would encourage all our investors to take a longer term perspective. And as you, you know, part of your job is to hold their hand. Yep. Um, and, you know, I would suggest that the last four or five years have been quite unusual in terms of the volatility we've seen in markets. Um, and, you know, we all know that small caps, small companies can provide higher volatility um, than the broader market, especially if you look at the mix of stocks in the Australian Small Companies Index, which is a mix of, um, you know, early stage growth companies, resource companies, and you compare that to the broader market, which, dare I say, is a little bit more boring, containing mm -hmm. banks and supermarkets and Telstra. Um, and layer on top of that, the fact that our small companies fund is a 150-50 fund. And so by that, I mean for every dollar that an investor might give us, we're actually giving them $2 of exposure, maybe $1.50 of long positions and 50 cents of short positions. And, you know, the beauty about that is that when it works, such as last year, it really goes well. Um, but obviously, you know, when times are challenging, like all levered products, you know, that can be a little bit more challenging. Um, and so, you know, in the long term, I've got a lot of conviction that, you know, the small companies fund that we have will outperform, um, you know, that 150 st 50 structure not only allows us to give um, the opportunity to add more alpha on the short side, but it means that we can run our long positions slightly bigger than a long only fund. And that means that, you know, when we are going well, you know, the returns can be very attractive. And Phil, you, you talked about the composition of the Australian Small Companies Index and it, it appears to me that around the world, the small companies indexes tend to outperform their sort of core, um, you know, S&P or the main market index, the bigger brother of them, if you'd like. But in Australia, it tends to underperform. Is that because there are so many mining and smaller companies and maybe some companies that shouldn't be listed at all in that index? <laughs> um, I wouldn't suggest there's any companies, well, I don't know, maybe in the index that shouldn't be listed. Um, I would put it slightly different. I, I think many things in markets move in cycles um, and I'm not sure what time frame you're looking over, but certainly over many time frames, small companies outperform. And certainly our view has been for a while that over the next five or 10 years, mm -hmm. small companies in Australia will not only outperform, but outperform significantly against the broader market. And that's for, for many, many reasons, but, you know, a couple of them might be purely the fact that we are bullish resources. Uh, you know, we do think the market in Australia should do well over the next five or 10 years. And we are, you know, a little bit cautious on the growth prospects of many of the 10 largest companies in Australia, because I think a lot of them are 
dare I say, at X growth. Um, and so, yeah, we think um, small caps is a great place to be. Um, you know, some of the exciting things in our small cap portfolio are what we call um, global leaders and, and many companies like, you know, Life360, Finios, um, many others are what we would call global, you know, companies that are leaders in their field mm-hmm. that in, in some cases are moving from losses to profits and obviously, when you start making profits, the growth in the first couple of years can be quite spectacular. And so, uh, yeah, we've got a number of companies in our portfolio that are in that position where the growth can be very exciting over the first few years. Um, and also, you know, we do have exposure to some of the resource companies that I think will do well over the next few years. And Phil, one one of the things, um, if I can maybe just pivot a little bit here from the small companies fund to more of the company at a higher level, in previous podcasts, we've spoken about your desire to build uh, Regal into the Barcelona FC of fund managers. And by that, if I understand it correctly, it's a virtuous cycle that the best players in the world want to play for Barcelona FC because it's so prestigious and they win and it's so good. And equally, you want the best portfolio managers, the best analysts, all to want to go to Regal as well. Two questions. Um, is that working um, and is that the desire of what you're trying to build? Yeah, look, very happy to be compared to Barcelona. You know, I do like, love my sport and I often use sporting analogies. So I, I think it's a great analogy. You know, for those non-football fans out there, Barcelona are always in the in the top three or so, top two or three in Spain. Yep. Um, and they do have some of the best players in the world, like Lionel Messi playing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly that would be someone that we would aspire to be like. Um, and I think I've perhaps said before that, you know, one of the um, benefits of being a quality fund manager is that, you know, we do attract the best talent and, and, you know, we attract the best talent because, you know, we can pay well and we also are a great place to work and we can give people a, a great career. And that's something I'm really proud of is some of the young people that we have coming through the firm um, that are really building careers and and making names for themselves. And so that's something I'm very proud of. And I I guess, you know, I do use sporting analogies because I do see investing a little bit like sport, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in in some ways they're both very competitive things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, They're both things that have an element of uncertainty about them. Um, and they're both um, pursuits that require not only a great deal of skill um, that you need to be born with, but they also require a lot of hard work. And obviously there's that famous sporting expression that, you know, the harder you train, the Gary, luckier Gary, you get. Gary Player. Gary Player. And, okay. and, and Phil, your music to my ears, I've done an episode, which of course you've listened to, I'm sure. I did an episode with Luke Keary who, who talked about high performance and performing uh, – in conditions under pressure and the fact that he could continue to do the right things, but he's he's one of 13 people on the field and he can't control everything and he might have done the right thing, made the right decisions and executed properly, but things go against him. Um, and then we also had on Cameron Smith's Mindset Coach on another episode where he talked about, you know, Cameron's ability to and and high performance players to make those decisions and function and and we've tried to draw that analogy that you did between the comparison between performing within a sports team and investment and making decisions without all of the 
variables known to you and you can't control all of those variables. So I'm really happy you've drawn upon it. It's something at Inside the Rope we've been trying to, to flush out. Um, Phil, one of the things I was – and looking through some documentation preparing for this, um, I was thinking about the entity of Regal and where it's going and how you're building. And one of the things we love to talk about is alignment of interest. And I noticed that the amount of income the organisation derives from performance fee – far outweighs what you get from management fee, which which I actually love. And I know, I know there's people in the market that say, oh, I know the performance fee, that's not, you know, but but I want it, I, I love the fact that we're aligned with you. A lot of your money's in there. You've spoken about your mother's money in the fund. Um, is that something you're conscious, consciously trying to build? And as you bring other organisations in like PM Capital and VGI, you're trying to overlay that ethos. Is that a deliberate strategy? I certainly think it is a deliberate strategy. I think it's it's very important to have incentives aligned and, you know, whereas some people who are probably overly reliant on management fees have probably got an incentive to... Just gather assets. Yeah, build an empire. Mm. We're, I think, very focused on performance still. And so I think having that reliance on performance fees is quite important. You know, one thing that we've done recently over the last few years is diversify away from you know, a small number of funds and now we've got many different funds and so, you know, the performance fees themselves are a lot more diversified, which is great. But certainly it is a mindset that we have is that we'd like to see our staff invested in the funds and ideally that's the biggest driver of their personal wealth and returns. And then secondly, we like to see, um, you know, a lot of our revenue get driven by performance fees and then, yeah, finally management fees. And so, yeah, certainly that's how we see things. Now, Phil, you've got a whole host of alternate assets and investments on offer via Regal. And I, and I look at RF1, the listed vehicle, which invests into a whole bunch of these investments underneath. And if I've got the data right, it sort of suggests that emerging companies is about 24% or a quarter of it. Resources royalty is about 18%. The small companies fund is 15%. Private credit, we'll come back to that, a new one, there at 12%, market neutral, which has been around for a long time at 10%, long short healthcare at 7%, uh, 9% to global alpha and 5% to water, which is a new one via acquisition uh, or venture with Kilt Rural. Um, that sort of breakdown, is that how you think roughly someone, and I know I can hear you, I think the response is going to be, well, David, that's your job to tell people how to split their money and what assets they should be in. But Broadly speaking, that that mixture allocation, do you see that as being something that's quite helpful for the average investor? Um, is that the way you arrive at those percentage breakdowns at Regal? No, I certainly think it is. Um, it re reflects what we're most excited about. I think the big lesson of the last few years, and more specifically 2022, is mm. that a traditional diversified portfolio of shares and bonds does not always work well. And I think in 2022, we saw both the US stock market yep. and many bond portfolios down more more than 10%. And so that diversification did not pay off very well. Um, and one thing that I learned after working in Europe for seven years is that a lot of European family offices were a lot more diversified than Australian family offices. I think mm. we've always had a high um, ownership of direct equities in Australia. We've got you know a lot of the wealth in Australia's uh, newer and first or second generation. And so many families are happy to do the investing themselves. Um, but the danger is that they aren't well enough diversified. And I think that's one lesson that, you know, many Australian family officers can take from European family officers. 
And that's certainly, you know, he's driving our philosophy, our, our strategy at Regal is that we do think we can offer more, many more diversified strategies. And so RF1 reflects that. RF1 listed on the ASX um, attempts to give investors that diversification in their portfolios through a single investment. Um, and so, look, it's worked quite well. It, it does provide diversified returns, but, you know, we, it also allows us to give investors exposure to some of the strategies that we're most excited about and some of the things that we're most excited about at the moment are some of those largest allocations in in the fund, as it were, and that's things like emerging companies and smaller companies, which we think will outperform larger companies in Australia over the next five years. So is the IPO window going to open again this year, do you think? I don't think the IPO window will <laughs> open for a while. Don't tell all my broker friends, but <laughs> I think it's well and truly shut for a long time, but let's just keep that between ourselves. Okay. Um, and, yeah, but on the flip side of that is I don't think, um, you know, we need the IPO window to open. And one of the things that makes me excited about the listed small cap market is that some of the valuations we're seeing in the listed space are a lot cheaper than some of the unlisted valuations. And so we think listed small caps is a great place to be. And, you know, we're very excited about resources. We mm -hmm. think we're in the start of a multi-year bull market in resources. And Tell us a little bit about that resources royalty fund and that strategy. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're bullish resources. We think there's been a huge underinvestment at the same time. We've seen, you know, we're seeing structural changes in the demand for various commodities. And so um, for many reasons, I think... Uh, we'll see resources outperform. And the beauty about the resource fund, uh, the royalty fund, is that it gives investors exposure to rising commodity prices without all the uh, uh, risk and, and impact of rising costs, which you get through owning equities. And so, you know, many uh, shareholders, many equity holders miss out on the benefits of rising commodity prices because uh, there's huge cost inflation in both CapEx and OpEx. Um, but the royalty fund just takes a share of the top line, the yep. revenue. And so, um, you know, that's, I think, a great way to get exposure to rising commodity prices. And so we very much like that and we're very comfortable with that exposure in, in the Regal Investment Fund. And then finally, the other large exposure that we've grown over recent years is our private credit strategy. And, you know, I think this has become quite popular, but with good reason, is because banks are stepping back from lending. Banks are getting, dare I say it, strangled a little bit by all the capital requirements and, and uh, paperwork that yep. they Post need to GFC, do. Post-GFC, all the changes yeah. with Bile 3 and 4 uh, and all those safeguards. And all that. And yep. They're making it harder and harder to, for banks to uh, lend money to, to people. And as a result... There's been a real gap in the market that's allowed private credit funds to, to spring up. And certainly we're very proud of what we've built at Regal. Our private credit fund is, you know, annualising double-digit returns um, without, you know, we think too much risk at all. And so I think that's very attractive in the current environment and a great place to be exposed to. And Phil, what type of lens are they doing there? Is that... Uh a property lender? Is that a cash flow lend against a company? What's the underlying asset they're securitising against or collateralising? Yeah, unlike many private credit funds, we've kind of largely avoided the property market. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have exposure to property, but most of our lends are to real operating businesses um, backed by cash flows. 
Um, I think in almost all cases, first security over the assets. Um, and so, yeah, very proud of that. And I think it, um, and we were very aware of that. It, it takes a very different mindset to run a credit fund as opposed to an equity fund. And so uh, we've got some great people, um, Jacob Polk and Gavin George run that for us. And they've got many, many years of experience in credit. And Phil, as I was alluding to before, you've been uh, alluded to as being a fundamental part of the market and the information flow that you get, particularly on the equity side. I'd imagine that information flow that you get and it, you know, one, I think one of the quotes was this gives Regal and Phil a great map of what's going on in the market. Does that information, I'd assume, comes quite handy when you're then in a position to lend money to them as well? Is that what you're finding? You're leveraging that information? Yeah, look, there's many aspects of that. and But certainly, you know, having a big network and, and talking to a lot of people helps in many aspects of our business. Um, and um, having that, you know, information, whether it's background knowledge on a company that's looking for finance or whether it's talking to um, competitors or suppliers in a certain industry, I think that all proves to be very, very helpful. Um, and, and just to take that even further, we've announced late last year an investment in another business called Taurus that provides financing to mining companies. And so that's, I think, a great opportunity for us because now we can offer the full package of financing for resource companies, which is a combination of equity finance, debt finance and royalty finance. And so that puts us in an even stronger position, I think, when we're talking to corporates. Lots of fingers in lots of pies, Phil. Can we maybe uh, just uh, change gears a little bit here and, and talk about what your view is? You've talked a little bit bullishly about the small companies. Where do you think we are in the in the sort of macro investment cycle? Obviously, there's been the last quarter last year, we've seen a, a run-up, particularly in the US and the Magnificent Seven. Where do you think we are in terms of timing of cycles and investment, investment outlook? I know it's very hard, but um, you've always got a good opinion, which I like. Yeah, okay. Um, look, it's it's not always easy put, to put categories on things and to put things in a box. And I think you know, one of the biggest mistakes that people have made over the last couple of years is to try and, you know, call the cycle, as it were, and say that the US and maybe Australia were entering a recession. Um, and that's proved to be probably the biggest mistake that many investors have made over recent periods. So in some ways, I think one thing that, one reason that we've been successful is that we've kind of always kept a little bit over, of an open mind as to uh, what might happen in the future. And so we don't try and, you know, do the big big um, predictions and, and put all the eggs in one basket, as it were, but mm -hmm. to uh, try and be prepared for all eventualities. And um, so in terms of the cycle, um, you know, there, there's obviously many cycles that interact, but certainly we think, we're, as I said, you know, uh, in, in the early stages of an up cycle in the mining sector. But, yeah, the economic cycle, uh, you know, it's been very clear from both the Fed and the RBA that, you know, they want to kind of reduce inflation and, and they do that by reducing economic activity. And so I think they've both made it very clear that rates will stay high till things slow down. Um, and it does look that maybe we're achieving the soft landing that, that so many people have you know talked about. Um, but like if I had to kind of just offer some sort of economic prediction, I would say that you know, I think the if the you know the economy stayed strong for a lot longer than expected, the economy might stay soft or, or weak for a lot longer than expected. And so 
Um, you know, I look at many analysts' forecasts for stocks and retailers, and you know, many people are predicting a, a one or two downturn, one or year two years downturn in earnings, and I think it can often be a lot longer than that. Um, and so, look in terms of the economy, um, you know, we're in a slowing economy probably, um, and. I've got no strong view whether it's going to be a recession or a soft landing. Um, and then, you know, I guess in, in some ways, you know, at some stage we'll see the economy bounce back a little bit. But, you know, in some ways I, I think it's dangerous to try and put too many categories and try and, you know, put put kind of terms on everything. And, Phil, do you, you talked about your position or thinking about resources as being at the early stages of a good growth cycle there. Um, China being soft and having muted growth doesn't concern you? China's a big concern and I've been talking about the slowdown in China for, for actually a few years now. I've just described China as China property specifically as one of the biggest bubbles in the market. In fact, I said it was a bigger bubble than Bitcoin and certainly has collapsed a lot more than Bitcoin has. Um, and so, but the, the real surprising thing about China, Chinese property, and certainly for Australia's, um, for, for Australia is the fact that iron ore prices have, um, held up so well. And it seems like the start Chinese steel production that previously got put into the property sector has just been exported. And uh, it certainly seems that maybe the Indian steel producers have stepped up a bit as well. Um, and so that's the big surprise for Australia is just how well iron ore prices have held up. Um, look, the Chinese economy looks pretty sick at the moment. Um, you know, uh, property has collapsed and that's been the big driver of the Chinese economy. So yeah, there are challenges there. Um, I've just been on a little skiing holiday to Japan and certainly it's a fascinating country. There's, there's so many different things going on, but you just look at even some of the skiing infrastructure and it's all 30, 40 years old because uh, that country has just basically almost done nothing for 30 years. And so there's a worrying kind of precedent, precedent there. For, yep. for China there. And so I think they're well aware of that. You know, fortunately, there's many differences. Um, you know, China hasn't had that bubble in equities that um, Japan had. And, you know, the debt in China resides at different levels. It doesn't reside in the listed corporates, which is what happened in Japan 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's many differences. And so I certainly don't think the downturn in China will be anything like what we've seen in, in, Japan. in Japan over the last 30 years. And I think, you know, the government's very much on top of that. And I think the, the stock market largely reflects a lot of the economic weakness. There's some great companies in China trading on some very low multiples. Um, and so... Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, what happens in China obviously has implications for the broader world. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's amazing that it, I, I think that places like Australia have held up so well. So, yeah, I'm mildly optimistic about what happens there. And Phil, from some smaller or, uh, you know, not mainstream as uh, iron ore commodities, you know, critical minerals and anything into the EV space, is that an area that uh, Regal's been very um, bullish on or how are you viewing that? Obviously, lithium's uh, had a bumpy ride of late. Um, what's the view at Regal in that area? Yeah, we're still positive on battery metals longer term, but certainly, as you say, I'd say not only has it been a bumpy ride for lithium, it's been an absolute train crash. Um 
And so, yeah, that's probably surprised many people. Um, and certainly um, it's put a lot of companies under a lot of pressure in the listed market. Um, and that's something that we're very, very focused on. Um, we do think that, you know, in the longer term, there's going to be strong demand for battery metals. Um, but it's just one of those situations where supply grew a lot faster than expected and faster than demand over a short period of time. So, yeah, we haven't had much exposure to lithium for a while, which has been very fortunate. We've done well in some other niche commodities. We've done very well in a stock called WA1, which uh, has, has discovered a great deposit of niobium, which is something I've learned a lot about, uh, which is... Uh, you, what, what is it? I, I don't niobium. know. Niobium. It's, okay. um, it's uh, used in strengthening steel. Um, it's also used as a fire retardant, which uh, has some exciting implications for things like electric batteries and things like that. But there's only two or three of those mines in the world at the moment. So that's a great opportunity for WA1. And so that's a stock that's done incredibly well for our portfolios in the last year or two. Um, and so, look, one of the benefits of having a large team is that we have a great resource team. And so we've got a mining engineer, a geologist and an investment banker in our resource team. And so we get to look at lots of companies. And um, I think like many sectors, you know, mining is an area where it pays to have experts. And so I've learned a lot um, from these guys over the last few years, and that's very exciting. Well, that's good. While well, you're Lionel Messi up front there uh, scoring the goals in the FC Barcelona team, you've got people at wing back and on the wings feeding it all in and the team's working well. Phil, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I hope that we can do it again sometime in the future. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.